Hey, creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person, it would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. I'm so sick of overthinking and letting fear stop me from taking up space. Are you? Do you find yourself letting fear and overthinking predict your future or affect the decisions you make? Today's guest is an incredible creative soul who will take you through the journey of creating his own business and share some advice for fighting fear in whatever it is that you do. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Patrick Ganino. He's an artist, author, and social media expert. He's best known for creating absolutely spectacular murals and paintings for celebs such as Hulk Hogan, Chevy Chase, Rosie O'Donnell, and many more, as well as for writing his own book, The Business of Foe, and his ability to create and curate online communities. Patrick hustled his way to become a professional artist. From the start, he approached art as a business and was relentless in his drive. He doesn't let perfectionism or overthinking get in the way of creating. He always just goes for it and trusts his instincts. From today's chat, you'll learn how to approach your creativity as a business, let go of perfectionism, and just make stuff ways to burst through creative blocks, the power of rest, and so much more. Now here he is, Patrick Ganino. Patrick, you're a fellow Italian, first of all. Always have to call that out when I have a paisano on the show. So I was going to say paisano, <laughs> I like that. I'm so excited to have you here. You're also a wildly talented artist and just a super smart businessman, so I know you have so much to share with my listeners. So thank you for being on Unleash. Thanks for having me. I am looking forward to it. Ah, same here. I've, I've kind of been stalking you today, so I like it. I'm excited to learn even more. But what I didn't find out from my stalking, and I'm curious about, is how did you first discover your love of painting? How did you discover you had this talent? When I was a little kid, I used to draw. It was like this German painter who's on TV. He's, you know, I'm 46, so. 36, 39, 40 years ago. I don't know. And I would draw with him and Bob Ross came out and I would loved watching Bob Ross. And then I was that kid in school that just doodled. I was a good student probably up until high school. And then I think I was kind of like, I already knew what I wanted to do. But prior to that, even I would just doodle, you know, right in my textbooks. I mean, I was constantly doodling. And was being an artist, I mean, I know in Italian American family, sometimes there's like a feeling of, you know, we came from the old country, you got to work hard, get a good job, get benefits. Yeah. Was that something that was part of your family culture? How was being an artist viewed in your family? <laughs> well, I think when I first started to do it, I think the family didn't necessarily see it as a way of making income. It was a, maybe a little bit frowned upon, not me being an artist, but maybe doing it as a career. Then there was a point where I did show that 
there was a certain amount of financial freedom and I was making it work. And then, you know, and then everybody was kind of like, you know, we always knew you could do it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was always supportive in general. I mean, my family was super supportive of just me being creative and a little bit of a wildfire. Oh, I love that. I feel the same way. My first job that I got like in the arts was in a Shakespeare festival in Michigan when I was still in college. And my dad was like, oh, maybe she can make money doing this because he's a financial planner. So he always had that fear. So I get curious when I meet my fellow Italians, if they had any of that, that energy. You know how it goes. I mean, listen, our ancestors, like my grandfather, I think when he was like 12 years old, he would jump on trains and go across the country to work. And even till, you know, the day he died, I mean, when he passed, we went in his garage and he still had tons of canned tomatoes and vegetables yeah. waiting for that second depression, you know? And I think that there's an inherent creativity in our ethnicity. Like you're saying, he canned tomatoes. He also had a fearlessness and a feistiness that I know runs through your veins today as you travel all around the country doing art. So it's 100%. like you're really just honoring where you came from just in a different way. Yeah, I agree. Totally. It's great, though. It's a great life to have that fearlessness and to just sort of, I would say, like, live life. Like, I want to live life. I don't Mm -hmm. think I could do a nine to five job. I mean, I've been sort of entrepreneurial since I was a little kid. What does living life mean to you? Like, what is an example of truly living, in your opinion? I think not avoiding things due to fear. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm experiencing things that not many people that I grew up with do. I mean, I get to travel, I get to climb onto buildings, I get to sort of experience these events that maybe are not typical. And I love it. I love it. And I don't really live by a set of rules necessarily like the most people do. You know, like I kind of create my own rules. They're all legal, but I create my (laughs) own rules and I live my life. It's very unconventional. You know, if you ask my wife or my kids or my mother or even my friends, it's not a conventional life. I love what you said about fear, because one of the goals of this show is to help people redefine their relationship with fear. Maybe we can't get rid of it, but we can at least take it out of the driver's seat. So we're making the choices. Fear isn't making a choice for us. For somebody who is riddled with fear and letting it make choices for them, how can they become more like you and live with less fear? You make logical, educated decisions. So when I make a choice on how I'm going to do something, whether it be in business or just in life in general, I ask myself pros and cons. If the pros are up here and the cons are really here, just do it. Don't think about it so much. Like stop thinking so much, just do it. And then you're better for it. You really are. You come out better. You're ahead in life. You have experience. You meet people, you're networking opportunities, provide themselves. Yeah. One thing I really admire about you is the quick paced creativity that you engage with. You create an unbelievably quick rate. And I think so many of us get into more think, less do, and you are totally a less think, more do kind of guy. What is the benefit of creating quickly? Well, I always love the phrase fail forward fast, right? I want to go on to the next, next, next. Like, let's figure out, is it going to work or not? If it's not going to work, I want to move on to the next as quickly as possible. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it. As far as painting in general, painting fast, I never wanted to get paid hourly. So even 25 years ago as a young kid, and I started this business, I was like, I'm not getting paid hourly. I'm getting paid by the job. So I'm either going to bid it properly or I'm not going to bid it properly, but I'm going to get paid for my talents and not do a 10, 12, $20, $40 an hour gig. So early on, especially, I realized the faster I work, the more money I make, right? So I would just zoom through it. And look, the work was fine for where I was at that time. And now I've gotten to the point where my technique and my ability has caught up with my speed. So now I can paint pretty spot on at a high speed. And now I make almost whatever I want, to be honest with you, because my rights are really high right now and I get benefits from it. So before you were to the skill level, like, were there things that you saw that you're like, oh, God, that imperfection, like, that's not exactly what my taste would want me to do? 
like, how did you get over any perfectionism that lingered in you and just say, hey, I want to get this done. I don't want it to be perfect. I've always been like that. So I know there are some artists out there who I'm very close with and they're super talented and they spend hundreds of hours on this little piece and maybe they're really focusing on this little portion within the piece. Yeah. I'm a commercial artist. So I'm also highly aware of like these small imperfections most people aren't going to see. I could be painting something and see something where like it's a little off, but I know standing back 20 feet, especially if it's on a building, nobody's going to see that. So I don't get hung up on it. You know, you're really kind of shaking my world right now because I'm such a perfectionist when it comes to audio. Like, I'm annoying. Like, if my editor sends me back and there's one little thing off and Rachel, my editor, is going to be laughing listening to this. I'm like, Rachel, great job, but there was this one little thing. There was a moment you missed. I cut it. Don't worry. But next time, make sure you get this little thing. And no one would ever hear it. So what you're making me realize right now is I don't actually need to be listening for what sounds good. I need to be listening for what sounds bad and realizing the difference between what sounds bad to me and what sounds bad to the general public. Yeah, we don't want to get stuck in the mud. We want to move on. We're doing stuff. We're busy, you know, so we're moving and we're moving and moving. Now, listen, if you find a spot that doesn't sound good and it takes you a minute to fix it, that's one thing. For me, that one spot could be an hour. It could be two hours. And I'm, again, I'm cruising through. I've got the next project. So, you know, another thing that artists tend to, mural artists tend to not necessarily think of is like, while you're working on this project, you're also preparing for the next project, the next project, because you don't want to finish one mural and then have two weeks off preparing for the next project. You need to have it in the ringer all times, right? Mm -hmm. So wait, let's follow this thread, because one thing you told me, we did a little pregame talk and something you told me that fascinated me was you always treated this like a business. You never and I was listening to another podcast interview you did. You never thought of it like, okay, well, I'm going to have this nine to five job and then I'll be an artist at night. You're like, no, I want to be a commercial artist so I can be making money from this right away. How did you do that? Why did you do that? Like, just show me a little bit of your trajectory and how you got here. Well, I mean, I, again, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know what. So I was the lemonade stand guy, seventh grade. I bought all these white Hanes t-shirts and I drew all these designs on them and I sold them to classmates. I went to, it was in high school. My closest friend to this day, Jim Dodato, we got approached by this guy named John. He wanted to sell door-to-door coupons. And it was pretty close to being as entrepreneurial as he could. He'd give us these little books and it was like, buy 10 entrees, get 10 free. And we'd sell them for 20 bucks door-to-door and we'd split it with the guy, John. So, you know, as 16, 17 year old kids, I mean, we were making like a hundred bucks a night and it was pretty much our own business. And we got so good. He started bringing us to other states to do it, but we were kids. So eventually we were like, we're done. This is getting, because we were just knocking on doors, but we're it taught us. Children. Yeah. We're literally children. It was getting a little, and the guy's name was John Holmes. I swear to God, it was amazing looking back and I'm like, what a weird deal. But that actually broke that sort of barrier of being uncomfortable with meeting people and getting comfortable with them right away. I mean, I remember there was one point I was walking up to this house. And we would basically split up the road, him and I. He would take the right side, I would take left, what have you. And I remember for some reason we were together on this one. And we were walking up, this lady was, you know, watering her flowers summer. And, you know, I started giving her my little pitch. And we were little preppy boys. We went to like a Catholic high school, all boys. So we had our khaki pants and our button-down shirt and a belt. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm watering the plants right now. And I was like, Oh, I was like, Don't worry, let me I'll water them for you while you get your checkbook. And she did. And I was like, Wow, that was easy. You know what I mean? It was like, okay. So I did that. Then I went down to school in Florida. I didn't want to go to college, but my family wanted me to. Jim was already going down in South Florida. So I was like, this sounds great. I'll go to South Florida. So I went down there and I dropped out of school after two weeks. He was working at a nightclub and they needed like a reggae girl done. So they were like $500. And I was like, all right, that's a lot of money for a kid. you know. So I took the gig, spent most of the money on supplies, finished it. Then I started like a valet parking gig. Me and a, another friend, we were going up the highway and we saw a construction site. We stole a bunch of the cones. 
there's my valet company right there. So I pitched this a restaurant, started the valet, pitched him on a mural as well. He said yes. And that was a $2,000 mural. And it was also a very hard lesson to learn because he didn't give me $2,000. That's what I wanted. So I finished the mural and I was like, hey, you know, it's going to be $2,000. He's like, I'm not giving you $2,000. And I was like, what? He's like, you didn't tell me how much it was going to be. And that, he threw us a couple of bucks. It was fine. But I was like, oh, I should give the price before I do the project. So I did that for a little bit. And then I came back to Connecticut and I got a job for a very short period of time. A job job, quote unquote. A job job. <laughs> We're was, putting that in quotes for people listening. Cubicle. I was horrible. It was cubicles. I'd go in every day. I was doing like billing and contracts for like a copier company. And I remember one day I drink a lot of water. So I used the bathroom for like the third time that day. And listen, as a guy, it's quick. We go in and out. It doesn't take that long. And my manager pulled me in her office and she's like, Patrick, I've noticed you used the bathroom a lot today. And I was like, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. And I basically told my wife at the time, I was like, I'm doing murals full time. And I quit. And then I just started hitting commercial strips, walking into businesses, pizza shops, like you name any business. And be like, listen, do you guys want a mural? And I would hit like one out of 10. And then I would do the phone book you know, old school phone book. We didn't have the technology like that. And I would call architects, builders, designers. I'd call them, I'd mail them something, I'd email them, then I'd call them again until finally they'd let me in the door. Because my whole thought was, just let me get in front of you. I'm going to make you feel comfortable. And I got you. And if I got in front of them, 95% of the time, they felt comfortable and they would find some sort of way to use me. And that was originally how I built my business. Mm, so many good tips to break down from that. I mean, the lady with the water, you're helping her out with something else she needs. So then she helps you with something that you need. Brilliant. And she kind of feels indebted to you because like suddenly you're doing the work that she thought she was going to have to do. So she's like, yeah, I guess I will buy the coupon book. Sure. 20 bucks. So smart. But I think that that same strategy actually could be utilized for more high level business as well. I love what you did with the valet service. So you combined it with this other entrepreneurial idea you had, which I know you still do to this day. So you had this yeah. other entrepreneurial idea, but you're like, at the same time, listen, I'm a really good mural artist. How about I do this for you? I love the lesson you learned, which is such a hard one. I've learned this one too, the hard way, where you had to say, okay, well, next time I'm going to tell them the price up front. And I think you also said you charge up front now, correct? Before you do the work? Charge half up front. Half up front. I charge the next quarter, halfway through, and then the final quarter at the end. Brilliant. That way they've got skin in the game too, right? They know what they're paying for and they also have skin in the game. And I just love that when you knew that that job wasn't going to work for you anymore, you didn't stick around for another two years because you were scared. You quit upon completion and then you hustled and you weren't afraid to ask. Yeah. I mean, the hustle is a big part. Like I have artists reach out to me all the time and they're like, you know, how do I get to where you are? I'm like, you got to work. You got to paint and you got to work. You got to meet people. You got to talk to people and you have to ask yourself who buys art people with indisposable income, right? And we need people with money, people who can spend money and not have to worry about it. Typically it's other entrepreneurs because they have a creative mind and it's wealthy individuals. So how do you get around them? One, you could do like I did. You can go to different commercial spots. Number two, you could find people like interior designers. They're essentially my sales team, right? Because they're already dealing with wealthy individuals and they're going to sell me. They get a little piece as well. And then something we talked about as well was uh, basically charity events. If you're going to a $500 plate dinner, you have money to spend. So my whole idea is I go there, I'm giving back now, I'm donating this painting, it gets auctioned off, it raises money from the charity, but I'm also have the ability to be seen by 500, 200, 1000 people who have money to spend and they get to see how fast I am by painting this thing live. That's it. So I tell artists all the time, and you know, listen, it's work, I work, and I'm still working hard, I'm getting the money I want now. And I have the leeway to sort of live a little bit more of a casual life, I still hustle, I like it. How do you now that you are in a place where you're more comfortable? 
keep that hustle going while still finding a way to enjoy. Because something I've seen with a lot of people who get successful is they get successful and then they're terrified they're going to lose the success and they don't enjoy it at all. How do you stay in that sweet spot where you still have the drive, but you're enjoying your life at the same time? I'm ADHD across the board. Huge benefit. Yeah, I can't sit still. So the hustle comes easy because I get antsy. If I'm sitting around doing nothing, it's very, very difficult. As far as enjoying life, yeah, it's tough. There was a point about a year ago where my business became such a priority, I realized it was affecting my personal life and I wasn't actually present. So I would be with my kids or my family or my wife or what have you, and I wasn't really there. Like physically, I was there, but I wasn't really there. And I had to step back and be like, all right, man, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're killing it in work and work is fun for me. It's play for me. So I never felt like I wasn't enjoying life. I've always enjoyed life. Every period of my life has almost gotten better. But I was like, I got to enjoy this portion of my life more and be more present. My kids are getting older. They're starting to go to college. And, and I just made a decision to take less phone calls. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have to call you back right away. And just maybe putting the phone down a little bit. I mean, the phone is a godsend to any entrepreneur, but it also is a hindrance for that peace of mind because we're accessible like doctors 24-7 now, text, emails, calls. And I'm one of those guys, like I respond immediately. I'm a you responder. truly do. Patrick is the quickest email response I think I've gotten to date. It's like I think the thought and you've already responded. It's incredible. Yeah. But how do you keep up that pace? I don't know. It's just, it's in my nature. I think it's just a natural nature. And also I think it goes to maybe a little OCD where like, I want to get it off the plate. So my ADHD makes me very disorganized. And what I did to solve that was every morning I have two pads of paper. I have a list of my short-term tasks for the day and my long-term ideas. And that could be a year out, three months, a month, it doesn't matter. And I'm constantly updating that list. So as I cross things off, I rewrite it every single morning, but that keeps me on track. So when I find myself getting off track, I go back to the list and I look and I go, oh, I got to do that. So I appear to be super organized. It's just a trait that I sort of created over the years. I love this way of creating to-do lists. So tell me, so you've got the long-term goals and then you've got the short-term goals, like the daily goals. Are the short-term goals all leading to the long-term goals? Like how do you draw those lines? Sometimes, sometimes there are a few that add up to one on the long-term and sometimes they're daily tasks, like go to the post office. So it could be call so-and-so. And then I, sometimes I'll have a third list and there's prospective clients, right? And their follow-ups. And then Google Calendar is amazing. I mean, I have reminders in my Google Calendar for the most mundane, simplest of items, but I like it because it keeps me on track. So I utilize everything I can to keep myself focused because my friend calls me the Tasmanian devil. You know, it's good and bad, I guess. <laughs> You're a very friendly Tasmanian devil. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So I feel like we do need to clarify why murals. I've heard you talk a little bit about it, but I think it's an incredible story. Why do you like mural art? Why murals? I'm an artist and I love creating. So to me, it's kind of like you find that really good book and you finish it and you're just like, man, and you're kind of a little bummed out because it's done, right? So that's how I feel with murals. I love the process of seeing something blank creating something out of it, going through it, getting it done, and then walking away. Like I don't necessarily enjoy a mural that I have probably for six months later because I'm still in that mindset of of creating it. But I like adding to it. I like the fact that it's a business where it's super unique, challenging from a money standpoint. I feel like I solved that portion of it. Don't have much competition. And I'm also creating something beautiful for other people to see. And from a marketing standpoint, if you look at my murals, I write my name right up and down the building. So you go to a building and it says, at Patrick Canino. I mean, you don't get better marketing than that. Yeah. And you said you've actually been hired from people seeing a mural, seeing your at Patrick Canino sign and then saying, hey, man, can you make a mural for me? Yeah, all the time. 
It's crazy. It's, I'm in Texas right now doing a mural in Plano, Texas. I started working in Texas. First time was maybe four years ago when I did a mural on this restaurant on this main street in Frisco, Texas. And I wrote my name up it. From there, a developer found, saw the name and hired me to do a couple other buildings and it started expanding. And now I find myself in Texas many times, many, many times over the years. I'm probably here once a month. Wow. Texas yeah. man. Texas is blowing up. So speaking of your business acumen, I heard you say on this podcast I listened to as well that painting murals is just 20 to 35% of the job. Can you explain what you mean by that? And what is the other percentage of the job? Like anything, I mean, when it comes to business, the actual product you have is the product, but like, what do you do with the product? How do you get eyeballs on it? How do you sell it? How do you profit off it? How do you network? How do you market? How do you keep it growing? You have to always be thinking you're putting out fires. I mean, painting is great. Like when I do a mural, I love it. I put in my earbuds, jammed in some music and I'm in peace, right? Mm. But what about all the other time when I'm designing murals, negotiating with clients, dealing with travel, you know, and so on and so forth. So the mural part's the easy part. There was a part though, there was a point back in the day, you know, 27 years ago, I'd be like, wow, I wish I could paint a cloud ceiling. And then I get it and be like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Or the first building, I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. I'm at the point now in my career where I've kind of solved most of those mysteries and I feel comfortable doing almost anything. And that's great because it allows me to sort of just focus on the business aspect. I love that, though, that you said yes to it anyway, even though you're like, don't know how it will work out. Always. There's some projects I was like, I have no place doing this at this point in my career. I mean, I think so many people listening relate to this, this statement you just made. I know I do. I just said yes to something. And I'm like, it's a week from now. I have to do it. I don't know how it's going to happen. You'll figure it out. I will. Yeah. But maybe I want to know what would be your advice to somebody like me? Like, what do you do to prepare for those times? Do you just wing it? Like, what is your method of dealing with a, I don't know how to do this or in the past, and I don't know how to do this situation? Well, research, make a list again. So I make a list and I go through to my head and when I'm driving or wherever I have you, I'll think of different items, I'll write it down. And then you start looking it up and there's so much information out today. You know, when I first started this, if I wanted to reference photos, I went to a bookstore, I bought a book on birds. I remember this one book, it was like, it, you know, it had like 20 birds in it. And I probably used the same bird in like 30 murals because that, those were the options I had. And then the internet started becoming a little bit easier. You didn't have that dial up and now you can get access to almost anything. And now I'm at the point also where I hire photographers to take original photos. So most of my work is completely original. Do you ever get blocked creatively? Yeah, 100%. How do you get unblocked when you're in one of those moments? Step away. It's funny enough, I got mentally blocked for the first time in like 2009 and I stepped away for almost a year. It was the longest I ever stepped away from art. I was just burnt out. I was doing small projects, but I was doing many of them. So I was doing 150 little murals a year and I just got burnt out. And I started another little business we can get into during that period of time to fill in that void. And then actually just recently, I would say in the last like two or three months, I found I was blocked. I had all these projects coming in and I was coming up with ideas, but I was feeling like just stifled a little bit. So for the first time in my career, I actually found a graphic designer. Her name's Joanne. And I needed to find somebody specific who can think out of the box. And I was like, here are my ideas. Here's some reference photos. Put this together. And I'm not going to micromanage you. I want you to put it together. And she put together the mural I'm working on now. She helped put that together. And there are two next murals I have. She helped put those together from a design standpoint. And it gave me a little break mentally. And it will give me time to sort of just re-up. Yeah. Well, that's a great takeaway. So your first thing was 
take a break, take rest. Because I think that something we don't think about is that rest is part of the creative process. It's how you rejuvenate. It's how you pull in inspiration. It's how you come back to your love when it's feeling too much like a job. I love that the other thing you did was seek out support and not just support, but really good, necessary and innovative support. Asking for help isn't a bad thing. In fact, when you collaborate with another person, it can make the project that much bigger. I delegate almost everything I can. If I can delegate it, I delegate it. I don't want to do anything except for what makes me thrive at my highest capacity. So you will not see me mowing my lawn. You will not see me doing things like that because I can make more money being creative and doing something I love and just pay somebody to do that. Don't get me wrong. Some people love mowing their lawn. And if you do, that's great. I just, I'm not going to do it. I want to do things that move me forward in life, right? Does it move me forward faster? And so let's circle back to that year, 2009, when you took the break. I'm assuming this is when the social media stuff came into play. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about it. Tell me about what that was. Okay. So it was either seven or nine. I basically started an online forum called fauxforum.com. And it was a place for artists to come together, decorative painters, muralists, more in the decorative painting field. And that would be marble, wood grain, muralists, faux finishing was popular then, gilding. There's a place for them to get together and chat with each other. And very quickly, it gained popularity. And I had this unbelievable sort of circle of artists that I knew throughout the world. It was amazing. It was a really cool thing because you could see what people were doing. You could talk to them, ask questions, and you could just take in the information or you could share the information as well. At that time, I wrote a book called The Business of Faux as well. And I had that published and, you know, definitely needs to be updated, but it was more about marketing as an artist and learning how to, you know, monetize your talent. So I did this. And at this point I was doing murals very differently than I do today. I was on ladders, my back was hurting my arms. I mean, you're contorting your body, you're twisting. And I was like, I got to find some passive income. I needed to figure out how to make some passive income outside of it. Cause there's a glass ceiling if you're a one-man show. So I came out with these DVDs. And I started filming these great artists that were on the forum. I picked seven or eight and I would fly out throughout the country and I would film them how to paint clouds, how to paint cherubs, how to do a fresco painting, you know, this and that. And I started producing these DVDs and they cost me a little bit of money up front because again, technology wasn't where it is today. But to actually produce them, you could make this DVD for $2 and you could sell it for $50 to $80. So it was a high profit margin. So I did that. The forum's doing well. And then I got reached out to by Sherman Williams. Sherman Williams was coming out with a faux finish line called faux impressions. Can you tell me one second? What is faux? Because I only know it is in like faux fur. What is faux in the way you're using it? So faux fake, right? Okay. So faux finishes, fake finishes. So I can make your wall look like marble. I can make oh, it look like okay. wood grain. Okay. Faux finishes is fake finishes. Got it. Okay. So it makes sense. Yep. So they were coming out with their line called Faux Impressions. And I had the audience that they wanted to sell to essentially because I had all these major players in the country. So they started flying to me Cleveland to their headquarters and asking me questions. And they started paying me to put an advertisement on my full forum website. So I think they were giving me, I think it was $1,000 a month. And I just had a little banner that said Trim Williams. And I was like, nice, I like it. So I'm not really doing anything. I mean, still business as usual. So then my industry organization, they approached me. They were trying to go digitally to physical magazine and they were in the red, they were bleeding money. And in my field, people sort of considered me to be on cutting edge from technology and the internet, whereas I really just hired a web guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I had an idea and I was like, this is what I want to do. If you do it, you would do it. So they approached me to take this magazine and turn it digital. So I took it, I turned it digital and I grabbed all the artists that were on the faux forum. And I said, hey, you know, who wants to be a writer? So I picked 
different writers. They would write the articles for the magazine, submit the photos. So here they are, they're getting a little credit for what they do. And I'm fulfilling the supply need, right? So when in the black, immediately they started making money. They started giving me $2,000 a month to do that. Plus a percentage of the ad advertisements that were sold. So now I've got like three, four grand a month coming in from this little side hustle I have going on. And I'm like, all right, that's not bad. I like this. All right. So one of my interior designers, my really high end one down in Greenwich, Connecticut, she wanted to sort of get into the blog world and Facebook was coming out and Instagram was coming out and things are starting to shift now. My forum is starting to become irrelevant because people are communicating differently. Blogs are becoming popular. Facebook pages were huge at the time. So I started helping her and I got her Facebook page going and I found a writer to write blogs for and did her website and she's giving me two grand a month. So now I'm doing six grand a month. I'm like, all right. So I was like, I'm going to build this into a business because I don't see a ceiling here. And this is kind of an interesting little thing. And to me, the formula is a formula. I've been promoting myself as a mural artist on Facebook and MySpace before that and Instagram right after that. And I just started pitching it. I just started literally doing exactly what I did as a mural artist. I would go into commercial businesses and be like, you want me to run your social media? You want me to build your social media presence? It was so new then. So back then we did a lot of that. And I started building Social Tune-Up. That's the name of the company for a year. And then I hired people to sort of run Social Tuna and do the work. And that year was a year off I took from painting. And then I got that itch. It was the longest period of time since I'd started that I had not painted. And I just came back with a vengeance. I basically tripled my prices and I just hit it hard. And that's when my mural business really went from this decent business that made money really to the next level. Wow. It was great. And during that period with the social media, I was able to take some of my celebrity clients that I had acquired and turn them into social media clients. So I almost had immediate clout right off the bat. And then once you do that, you just get word of mouth. And if you're cool, listen, if you're cool with your clients and you're not in awe and you don't, you know, you're just, when you're around very wealthy people or celebrities, you see, you hear, you're dealing with super creative, unique individuals, just be cool about it. And they are going to spread the word and share it because everybody likes to know somebody who knows somebody and it works and it worked really, really well. So I would flip my mural clients into social media. Then I started getting social media sort of celebrities and small TV shows directly. And I would flip them as much as I could into mural clients because I'd always work in, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. And it made me more interesting. It set me apart from the regular social media person. How do you do that in an authentic way? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that flip to do the job that they were hired to do, but also to let someone know I do this other thing as well and I'm really good at it. How do you do it in a way that's authentic, still humble and not pushing something on someone, but rather just letting them know and inviting them in. That's the secret of being Italian. You know that. Well, I know that, but we don't have all Paisano <laughs> listeners. We got to let them in on our secrets. You got to like people. So, you know, we are all built like human lie detectors. We know when someone's full of shit. We know when someone's just not on the level, right? So you got to really like people. I genuinely like people. I was a guy that threw the parties in high school. I was, you know, like I love being around people. So, you know, the same token, we are in sales and we are in marketing, but you have to be genuine. So I would just chat people up. Like I love getting to know people. I like knowing where they come from. Kind of like what's the purpose of your podcast? Your purpose of your podcast is to find out what does Patrick Ganino do? Where did he come from? Why does he do what he does or whoever else is on your podcast? Well, I'm like that with everybody. I like to learn who they are, what they do. And I just talk to them. And then at some point it becomes relevant in the conversation of what I do, or they ask me, or they check me out on my Instagram, my Facebook, and they go, I didn't know you were an artist. I wait for that moment. I don't throw it down their throat. I'm super casual about it. You know, if I feel like there's an in and they like art, I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a mural artist. I don't know if you like art, but I'd love to show it to you. Or 
simple, casual conversations, people to people, just being a regular person. Just don't act like a robot and you will be fine. Yeah. And I don't sell hard. I'm not a hard salesman. I'm one of those guys, if you call me in for a mural and we're sitting there for an hour, we're probably just chopping it up for 50 of the minutes in the last 10 minutes, we're talking about details. Yeah. It was probably my first five years of business. I was talking to a client and I was on the phone with her and she was a middle-aged housewife, a couple of kids, husband works all the time. And she chatted me up for 45 minutes to an hour. And I don't really think I said much. And at the end of the conversation, she was like, Patrick, that was one of the best conversations I had in a while. And I was like, wow. I was like, people are thirsty to be heard. I've never felt that need. I feel like I'm very good when it comes from a social aspect, uh, getting to know people listening and talking and going back and forth. But I found that the majority of people out there are not being heard by anybody. So if you're willing to listen, you're already ahead of the game. And I enjoyed it. Seeing people, I think, is one of the most underrated things you could do in life. Just everybody wants to be seen. Everyone wants to know that they matter, that their existence matters, that they've affected someone. And so to see someone and reflect back what you see, I think, is one of the most beautiful gifts you can give another human being. And I think the other thing that you're saying in this is just being authentic. When you are authentically yourself, when you see people, when you build a connection with someone, they want to build a connection back with you. That's it. And then you're remembered. Mm-hmm. It's all about being remembered, right? So if something comes up, whether it be social media or murals or music or podcasts, they're going to remember you because of it. And be like, oh, boom, because they want to be around you now because you're adding that good energy. You could be in a room with eight people and that one person that walks in with that low energy can dictate that room and bring it down. Or on the opposite, you could have that one person that walks in with the high energy and dictate it up. So you want to be that high energy person. My son, my middle son, Carter is a great kid. All my kids are great. This kid is a low high. He's very much like me energy-wise. And, and if he's having a bad day, he'll come in. I'm like, Carl, you got to be careful, man. The energy's low, man. And you're going to bring the room down. So just if you're not feeling up to it, either fake it a little bit or just go to a private space, man, because his energy definitely dictates a room. Mm. But I love that. I love that it's like that because it's raw and it's real, you know? Yeah, that's powerful. But to know the power you have on people and if you don't want to affect people negatively, figuring out how to sort that out on your own, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift you give to people when you understand how your own energy works. Totally. And that's what I try to instill in them. And I want them to understand that. So you have three kids. Is that what I just heard you three say? Kids. Three kids. Yeah. Okay. And it's two sons and a daughter. Yeah, my oldest is uh, 23. Okay. She's uh, living up in Boston, killing it on her own. Super proud of her. My middle son's Carter. He's 19, first year in college. And he's just very similar to me in the way that he sees life. And my youngest is Colson, who's this crazy creative dynamo. He's either going to run the world or become like a mastermind thief or something. I don't know. He's a, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's a really talented kid, super smart, debates people, straight A's, yeah. plays the drums, great artist. But all three of them are so uniquely different. But then they're very similar as well, where they don't have fear in life. They do go after life and they're aggressive, but they're polite and sweet at the same time. Like, it's a really, really proud of them. My dad, like I said, was a financial planner. My mom worked at American Airlines. So I don't know anything. I was always the weird one. My dad was like, oh, you are such a creative kid with your strong emotions and your meltdowns. That's literally what he called. Like, I was yeah. just feeling dad, actually. I was reacting normally <laughs> to the situation instead of pushing it down like everyone else in our family has done. But right. I wonder how it's been like, you know, observing them, seeing their dad go after their dreams. Like, that must have been such a powerful It's one thing to say your kids can do it, right? Like my parents always told me I could do my dreams, but sometimes I felt like because my parents pursued a more traditional path, I had an extra burden to carry because I didn't have somebody who modeled a similar path to the one I was taking. 
And it just felt scarier to hold because no one in my family had done it. Have you ever talked to your kids about this, about what it's been like to see a dad who actually has gone after and achieved their dreams? Have you ever talked to your kids about this, about what it's been like to see a dad who actually has gone after and achieved their dreams? I don't know what they think about that. I really don't. It's so normalized. I mean, they've been seeing me do this since they were little tiny kids. I think I'm more strict with my children to a certain extent. My mother and father gave me a very long rope to just be who I wanted to be. And I'm so thankful for that. Maybe too long because I was a wild kid and I lucked out a couple of times. But um, with my kids, I'm trying to instill maybe a mix between my wife and I's sort of mentality. She went to college the whole time. She was very boop, boop, boop. And I'm more free flowing. I try to give them freedom like my parents did to make their own decision. But listen, they're Italian, they're headstrong, they're stubborn. It's not like I can be like, hey, you know, I think you should do this. They're gonna like, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. And so I just, I'm open to that. My youngest, six months ago, came and he was super stressed out about school. You know, he's in the AP classes and he's drowning a little bit. He's working for two in the morning, straight A's. Da, da, da. He's like, dad, I, I need a break. He's like, I'm thinking about taking like a gap year after high school. How do you feel about that? And I was like, listen, you can do what you wanna do. Like whatever you wanna do, like it's a long life, man. I said, but let's fill out the college applications anyways, because six months from now, you may have a change of mind or a change of heart. You know, yeah. so he did and he got some scholarships and now he's all pumped up about it and he wants to go. But it's a moment, right? We all have those moments in time and we don't want to necessarily react so quickly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because I wanted to take a gap year between high school and college and I had to really convince my dad. So I think the way you approached it was smart because if you just been like, no, he would have been like, well, I'm going to do it anyway then. Because my dad at first was saying no. And then I convinced him to let me do it. And then I was like, actually, I don't want that. I'm going to go to Michigan yeah. State. I just wanted him to like say, yes, you can do it. And I believe in you. Totally. So that approach is smart. It's like, OK, yeah, you can do that if you want, but give yourself options. I think with anyone yeah. creative, anyone stubborn, anyone strong willed with a really strong personality, that's the best approach. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> They're not going to listen to me. Sometimes they take some advice from me. And I, I think sometimes it's one of those where like, I'll say something to them. They'll go through the experience and then they'll have the aha moment and be like, oh, he was right. But they've got to figure it out themselves. Like you were like me growing up. I mean, you got to figure it out on your own. My parents were, I would get into trouble or I would have these crazy experiences happen and they were super forgiving. They never really panicked or bugged out. They had the thought process, I think of, like, it's life. It's going to work out. You know, what's the worst going to happen? And it usually does. And so I try to, as much as I can, have that same philosophy. So speaking, because, you know, obviously parenting is like an extreme version of mentoring, but you mentor and teach other creatives, or at least you have in your, the course of your career. Yep. What is the top lesson you try to instill in anyone who is pursuing a creative career and hasn't found a way to make it lucrative for themselves yet. Do stuff, do things, work. Like you have to work first and foremost. If you don't have a name and you want to do it, you need to produce work. And with the internet now, you can produce work on a regular basis. You can put it out there. You've got to find out who's your core audience, who you're trying to sell to, and how do you get yourself in front of them? It's real basic, right? Like, all right, I want to sell you know, paintings for $300, $3,000, $30,000, $300,000, decide what you want to do. And maybe it's a tier that builds up, right? But find out who your audience is. And, and they ask yourself, all right, how do I get in front of them? Are my audience, is it other entrepreneurs, business owners? Is it celebrities? Is it doctors? Is it lawyers? So on and so forth. All right. You pinpoint who that is and ask, how do I get them to see my work? And you have to ask yourself, what do they want to see? Like the biggest difference between being a fine artist and a muralist is a fine artist will do paintings and then try to sell them. As a mural artist, I ask you what you want, and then I design it accordingly. So I'm never spending time painting something and not selling it. I'm always getting paid for what I do. Am I whoring myself out a little bit? Yeah. Who cares? Oldest profession. 
Yeah, whatever, man. I'm down with it. I get to wake up every day and be creative. Now, mind you, early on, I definitely hoard myself out. And now it's to the point where my clients tend to come to me and ask me, what do I think I should do? Like, here's the wall. What would you like to put on it? And I get some ideas and I get to create my own sort of designs accordingly. So it's a nice melt. But yeah, find out who your market is and ask yourself, how do I get there and how bad do I want it? Because being an entrepreneur is not an easy lifestyle. It's got the highs. It's got the lows. You got to have a capacity for stress. You got to get creative financially because sometimes you're going to be broke. I remember earlier on, I'd have to be like, all right, I got a quarter tank of gas. Which direction? am I going to maximize my financial return so I can get more gas? And those were real moments as an entrepreneur. I would figure it out back in the day, like, all right, I can go to the ATM and I can overdraft my bank for $29 fee. All right, my max amount is $500. So I just took a $500 loan out of the bank for $29. That's my interest, you know? And, oh. and this is real life. You figure out these things because, all right, I'm not getting paid or the check's not clear until Monday. I need a couple bucks because I had to keep the machine going. That was it. Yeah. Well, that's getting creative. You know, creativity doesn't yeah. just pertain to your art. It also pertains to every aspect of your career. And then how bad do you want it? Yeah. Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you want to be an artist? What are you willing to do it? Are you willing to forego those meetings going out at night to go to a meeting? Like I remember I had, I've had some artists where I've given them unbelievable opportunities. I'm like, listen, it's this weekend though. It's the last minute. It's this paying job. It's good. It's for this client. They're going to get you more work, but you got to go on Saturday. They're like, well, Saturday's the day I have off. And I'm like, okay. It's up to you. Like, how bad do you want it? You willing to give up a Saturday so you can have a life of being creative or do you not want it? I remember one of the craziest weekends I had and it ended up becoming really fruitful was I was supposed to go to LA and I was doing a mural. I had gotten called by Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, and he was doing some work with Mike Tyson. And I was going to LA on Sunday, I think it was. And he called me on a Thursday or Friday. He's like, Pat, I want a mural. I, you know, I want to get a mural of Tyson and his wife, Kiki, and I want to give it to him when you're out in LA and I'll bring you to meet him. And I was like, all right, cool. So I stopped everything I was doing. I had two days to figure out what I was going to paint and paint. So I figured out, I start painting it. I get a call from another friend of mine, Darren Prince, who owns a Prince Marketing Group. And he's like, Pat, I'm in Rhode Island, which is about an hour north of me. He's like, I'm here with Chevy Chase. He's like, I think he wants to, you know, he's looking for a social media guy. Will you come meet him? And I'm like, the middle of doing this painting for Tyson, but what are you going to do? So I drove to Rhode Island, came back, worked late on the painting, flew out to LA, did the deal, gave it to Tyson. Tyson hired for a mural, came back from LA, ended up getting Chevy as a client who ended up becoming a very good friend of mine. But again, it's the hustle. Like, you know, I could have said no to that. No, I mean, I'm in the middle of this painting. I got to finish this. I don't have the juice for it, but I didn't do that. And that's the difference, I think, between really wanting to make it and thrive mm -hmm. versus just being content. Yeah. It's a yes. And, and also knowing what's worth it. Like those are two situations that are extremely worth it. It's not like someone was asking you to come in and paint something for $50. Those were two right. huge relationships that were going to lead to other relationships that were going to expand your life and creativity and network in a way that was invaluable. So you make the time for that. And I think that's part of also building your gut and intuition, figuring out who you want to sell to, right? Figuring out the kind yeah. of work you want to do. So it's like you're almost creating this, I'm not a code of ethics, but a mission statement for yourself. And then if it falls into the mission statement, you go for it, no matter what. There's many things like that. Even early on, like I would say, all right, I want people who can afford to have marble tops or what have you. So I would go to these high-end showrooms and I would go in and be like, listen, give me a wall here. I'm going to do samples of all these faux finishes and decorative painting techniques. Let me put them on the wall with my name and it'll give you something else to offer your clients. And I would do that. I would do it to these shots. So I'd sit in my studio. I'd make all these sample work, spend days doing them, install them into these little showrooms. And I had these showrooms around that would promote me. Like I would do all these crazy things. Like I would do anything. I would throw it against the wall and see if it stuck. And if it did, I would double down, triple down, quadruple, and just do it over and over again. If it didn't, I'd move back. There's something I think about a lot when it comes to creativity. I heard 
Ed Sheeran do an interview with Howard Stern. And he talked about the moment he broke through musically was actually not the moment, but what really started helping him break through and get known was he would play music at comedy shows. So that put the seed in my head of go where you're not expected. That's where you'll thrive and you'll finally be seen. What has that been in your own career? I've met clients in the most random spots, but again, it goes back to enjoying people. Like I could be on a plane and just be rapping with somebody and get like this unbelievable connection. I just have the weirdest, most broad network that you can think of. And it goes all across the board, but it's just talking to people, being nice, being friendly, acts of kindness. Like I believe in all that. I'm a firm believer that if you do something good for somebody, it pays it back. Not in like some weird spiritual way, but if you're adding acts of kindness to the world and you do it to one person, there's one person on the planet that thinks kindly of you. And if you do it to two and three and 50 and 100 and 200, now you have an army of people that think kindly of you and they're going to talk kindly of you. And it comes back. It just automatically comes back because you become a very nice guy or a woman and people want to help and be supportive of that. So just be a good person. Fair enough. So just to circle back to this money thing, because I think this is a huge blind spot for so many creatives. Just for the record, I have not overdrafted my account in a very long time. (laughs) I think that's a brilliant idea. I never would have thought of that. I mean, just I love how out of the box it was. But how do you figure out pricing? How do you know when it's time to increase your price? For somebody who's never set a price before, where do you begin with that? So again, early, early on in my career, I worked for a lot of entrepreneurs and there's one guy, he owned this cooling and heating company. His name was John as well, John Dunkley. And it was out of Mystic. And he gave me one, a really great lesson back in the day. He was like, once you get booked out six months, raise your prices, raise them 20%. You're going to lose some clients, right? But you're going to keep them and you're going to make more money for what you're doing. I took that premise and kind of did it over and over again. When I opened Social Tuna, I had the passive income coming in where I could triple my price and afford to lose half my clients because now the other half are basically, I'm still making more than I would with all of them at regular pricing. You got to get comfortable and you got to be willing to lose. There's an upgrade that happens with your clientele that needs to be done at some point if that's what you're looking to do and you have to be willing to lose them. Mm, That's really good advice. Also, I find sometimes when you're like, oh, fuck it, I'm going to just charge this much. And you think no one's going to pay that. And then someone does. And you're like, wait, what? This is a real check. I should have added on a few more zeros. I have a formula now. I have a square yeah. foot formula that I use and I adjust, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, I came across, I was moving my studio a little bit ago and I, was, I came across some old files from like 15, 20 years ago. And I was like, oh, let me look in here. And I was looking at my pricing. And I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> it hurt. I was like, I don't even know how it's in business. It's funny. You know, it's an evolution. It's a process. I think in order to charge what you're worth, you have to feel you're worthy on the inside. How did you get to the point where you felt you were worthy of charging what you truly were worth for your work? I've always felt like I was worthy. I really have. When I was younger, I think I sold myself a little short. One, because maybe I didn't have the knowledge base or the client base to where they needed to be. Number two, I had little kids. So I needed to make money to pay for diapers and food and everything like that. And it was expensive. But I always felt like I had the worth. I don't think I ever doubted that I would be successful at what I was going to do because I felt like the only way I fail is if I fail myself. Like it's on me. And even today, like if I want to lay back a little bit and not work as much, I'm going to make less money. If I want to really hustle, I can make more money. It's on me on what I'm going to do in life. And I like that. I like the fact that I get a the success is mine and the failure is mine. It's all on me. When you're in that stage, I recently had an amazing guest on and she was talking about how she's grateful for what she has, but she's not where she wants to be. And she's feeling tortured in that in between. And I think a lot of people, when they know they can get to that place, you know, where you are now or where you, you know, are going when they're not there, when they're the you 20 years ago, it's easy to get downtrodden and be like, well, why am I not there yet? What's wrong with me? Do you want to see something cool? Yeah. I'd yeah. Love I'll to. show you something. Let me grab my wallet. Hold on. It's okay. right here. So my first year in business, 
You remember those Rolodexes where you put phone numbers in? Yes. You know, you'd write them down. So there's like a little Rolodex card, right? Uh-huh. So I wrote down what I felt I lacked at that time and what I needed to be successful. So I'll show it to you and then I'll read it to you. Okay. So it says, be hard, right? You need to be hard in life. Life is a tough world. It's tough to go out there. You got to be hard. You got to willing to persevere and so on and so forth. Be smart. You know, use your head, think things through, be smart about what you do and why you're doing it. Patience. I didn't have a lot of patience. So I was like, I got to learn some patience in here. My children did that for me. Pride. Do things that make you feel prideful. Don't go out there and half-ass shit. Even when I do my murals and I have my little errors, there's still murals I'm proud of. Like I never walk away being like, that's a piece of shit. You know what I mean? So pride in what you do. Pride in the way you portray yourself around others. That could be the way you dress, the way you comb your hair. It could be everything. Pride in life. Can you walk around with your head up high? Control. I like to control as many situations as I can, right? I don't like to put myself in a situation where I feel like I have no control. So I don't make half-assed sort of decisions in life. Like we talked about earlier, when I make a decision on whether I'm going to do something, I look at the pros and the cons. If the cons are small and the pros are big, all right, I feel like I have enough control in that situation. I'll do it. Energy. I'm not going to let anybody beat me because of energy. So that guy who wants to take Saturday off, I'm working Saturday, Sunday. If you want it, if you want to get to that next level, you got to do that. You know, you hear about these super creative individuals and entrepreneurs that live in their car. Like you want it, you go get it. You're not going to beat me because of energy. Motivation, what motivates me? Like find out what motivates you. You need that motivation to wake up. I wake up every day on fire. I'm a 5, 5.30 in the morning guy. Can't help it. My eyes open and I start thinking. I get excited. Love. You love what you do? Do you love the people around you? Do you love your world? Like, all right, you need to have love in your heart. You really do because that comes out in the way you treat others. And the way you treat others is the way people think of you and so on and so forth. And then money is the last one. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it to make money. I'm not going to be a starving artist. I'm doing this because I want to be an entrepreneur. Although I love art and I'm so grateful that I have the ability to become an artist and live a life of creativity. But let's say that I was an artist. I'd still be an entrepreneur. You know, I want to make money. So how did having those things on that list help you get through that pain point when you felt I'm not where I want to be. How did that list motivate you to get to where you are now? So listen, we all find ourselves going through life, right? And there are points in life where you're like, I am killing it. Like I love life. Life is amazing, right? Like I cannot, I'm floating on a cloud right now. And then there are points where you start to maybe feel like maybe a little hole, right? A little void, or you're feeling a little down. You're like, and this happens to everybody, me all the time, right? So the idea is when you start to feel that sort of weird vibe, you say, all right, why am I feeling this way? What am I not doing? What should I be doing? So within business, if I felt like I was getting off track, I would go back to the list and be like, what am I doing? Am I not being patient? Am I not putting myself in control of situation? Am I not motivated? Why am I not motivated? And you ask yourself those questions. That list is, it pertains to me, but everybody has a list that they should have, that they should be able to look back on and say, all right, why am I not feeling like I'm on a cloud? Why am I not feeling like I am loving life right now? Listen, some people are in unfortunate situations where they can't get out of it, but you can do the best you can. Like you go through the list and you do the best you can. And unfortunately, I do believe that the path to happiness comes from doing the things that are hardest, right? The easiest things are eating a gallon of ice cream, drinking your face off, sleeping in. These are the things that are easy, but they're short-term things that make you happy. In the long-term, they make you unhappy, right? Maybe you're a little bloated, you feel uncomfortable, you know, maybe you're hungover, whatever it is. So the things that really are the hardest, like going to the gym, eating clean, waking up early, those are things that benefit us long-term in life and make us more successful. So we have to choose, again, if you want to be successful, are you willing to do what it takes to do that? So your friend you mentioned earlier, if she wants to get to that next level, she asked herself, how do I get to the next level? What am I not doing to get to the next level that I need to be doing? Well, yeah. And that list that you made, yes, it's a list to attain the success you want, but it's also a list of values. And I think 
making a list of your own values and what you value in life, what you think will take you to this like place of more joy than not, more happiness than not, more peace than not, is really important because you have something tangible to go back to. I think so much of what I'm taking away from your story is you made what so many of us think are intangible things tangible. Like you took art and you're like, okay, yeah, I love art and I want to paint, but I also want to make money. So how can I do that? Instead of just like spinning on the question, you're solution oriented. So this idea of making a list of what you value or what could bring you closer to a life that would be valuable to you is brilliant. And then you have something to go back to when you're in those moments of pain or the dark night of the soul. Ooh, the dark night of the soul. That was heavy. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> I mean, it happens. It happens, especially to creative, sensitive people. Like, totally. This yeah. is something we go through. While there are gifts that come with it, there's also a pain that can come with it. And so, what of you're course. doing is giving yourself a foundation so that when that pain comes up, you have a place to go. You don't fall into it. What's well, recognizing that this is a moment in time and I can solve that moment and taking a little bit of it, looking inwardly and saying, hey, all right. Is there anything I can do? Because there's sometimes there's going to be things that just make you sad and there's nothing you can do about it. And that is what it is. And there is a way I do believe that you can, you know, have a little strength over your mind to sort of correct it a little bit, but it is what it is. But we do own our happiness. Nobody owes us happiness. We owe ourselves happiness, right? I agree. So tell me, okay, Patrick, if you could go back and tell the version of you who stole the cones and was about to make his business with the restaurant owner and paint that picture, anything. If you you and that guy were standing in the same room, you and that version of you, what do you think you would say to him and why? I don't think I would. I mean, all those experiences make me who I am. Like every little trip or pitfall or error, those were all lessons that I've brought with me to today. And you have to go through those. You have to, you got to go through those mistakes because then they hit the hardest and you remember them. So if you don't go through those and it's kind of like, um, there's the entrepreneur that starts with nothing and has to overdraft and go through the pains and trials and tribulations of becoming successful. Then there's an entrepreneur that maybe his father or mother are loaded and they get money and they can just open up a shop. That entrepreneur may still well be very, very successful but they haven't had to go through and learn all those lessons. They're learning everything real time. Like I had the ability to go through my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, or even my teens earlier and learn all these things. And I like it. I like every period, every period of my life I've loved. And I, I love the next one even better. So I, I don't think I would say anything. You know, I maybe smack myself on the butt and be like, go get them. <laughs> final, final question. What are you working on right now? How can we support you? Right now I'm working on a 2,200 square foot building in Plano. It's for Raising Cane's Chicken. It's their headquarters. I'm taking a few days off now. I actually have family in town, so I'm enjoying them for a couple of days. So I go back on Monday. It's awesome. I mean, I love being on a, a lift and that bucket lift and just right on the wall. It is probably one of my favorite places to be. It's amazing. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing all of your insight your incredible advice and your great personality and spirit. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. And I feel like I need to interview you next, you know? All right. Start a podcast. I'm in. All right. All right. I'm doing it. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> you're awesome. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Patrick Ganino. For more info on Patrick, follow him at Patrick Ganino and visit his website, patrickganino.com. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks, Liz Full, for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag the guests at Patrick Ganino so he can share as well. 
My wish for you this week is that you just go for your creativity, your passion, the way Patrick does with his art, with his business, with his life. He doesn't overthink it. He goes for it. So I wish for you to not overthink, to trust that your dreams are in your heart for a reason and go toward it with all your might. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.